What's up, everyone? I'm Andrew Steinwald, and this is Zima Red. On this show, we speak with the users, founders, and creatives that are diving into the world of unique digital assets, also called non-fungible tokens. Andrew Steinwald is the managing partner of Sifermion, an investment firm focused on the NFT ecosystem. All opinions expressed by Andrew and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Sifermion. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Sifermion or related entities may maintain positions in the assets discussed in this podcast. My guest today is Julian Geneste. Julian is the founder of Unlock Protocol, which is a protocol for memberships built using blockchain technology. This enables memberships to not only be ultra secure, but super easy to manage, as it's all done through a couple clicks on a wallet. Julian was born for Web3. He's been coding ever since he was a teen, constantly tinkering and building different software products, but he always thought there was a better architecture for the internet. When he discovered Web3, it was game over. We discussed Julian's background, Unlock Protocol, and how many of the problems with the internet stem from the fact that it currently has an ad-driven business model. Engagement means more money, which means creating outrage is the most profitable strategy. Julian is building a future that creates a new business model that will fix many of the deep-rooted issues and create a better internet. Please enjoy my conversation with Julian. Julian, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm super excited to chat with you. And to get us started, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background. Hey, thanks for having me. Of course, uh, where do I start? I'm a software engineer. Uh, that's the thing that I think defines me the most, uh, a nerd. Uh, I'm also an entrepreneur and a founder. And maybe the fun part of this is like, I, I was bored when in high school here in France. Um, I'm actually French, I should have said this as well. Uh, bored when I was in high school. I mean, actually first year of university and looking for a summer job and I couldn't find any. And I eventually looked uh, for, I mean, it was like 2001. Uh, so it was like, everybody was like, oh, the internet, the internet, blah, blah, blah. So I was like, oh, I must find a summer job online that must exist. And I looked for one and couldn't find anything. So I was like, oh, I'm going to create the, the job board for students. Um, and that was kind of, I don't want to say a joke at first, but like really kind of like, a, oh, pff, I'm bored, so I'll do that. And then after a couple of months, uh, I think about three or five months, uh, all of a sudden, uh, McDonald's uh, started to put job offers on my website. And, and that's when I realized the internet is magic. That's when I realized like this thing where, you know, I'm just uh, a 20, not even 19 years old uh, in my parents' basement, basically uh, bored creating a website. And what I thought was at the time, the biggest company in the world, because obviously as a, as a, as a teenager, or early adult, like McDonald's was like the biggest thing in the world. Uh, started with job offers on my website. That's when I realized like, oh, this internet thing is magic. It allows me, anyone to, you know, make a little business, uh, create a thing that's useful for everybody else. It's amazing. Okay, so so how did you learn how to code initially? Yeah, uh, at first, uh, basically, my 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 dad actually brought a an old Mac from the office, uh, and I remember at first not coding anything. Uh, but then he or my uncle actually told me about Basic, uh, and say, hey, look, there's this language called Basic when you write like little instruction to the computer, and then it does what you need to do. And so that's really the first experiment that I had around kind of writing code and then uh, the next one I think was mostly around there was a, a game uh, on, on the Mac uh, and I remember there was a way to kind of script some little things and so I did this found uh, I think a friend of mine told me uh, in a magazine how to do that and then basically high school right like did some Pascal in high school and that's the beginning of the end I guess for me. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, so so you started coding when you were what like 12, 13? Uh, maybe 13, 15 you know around that age. That's incredible. Okay, so and then you said you you were building this this jobs board for high school students, right? Yeah, exactly. When I was like nineteen, uh, so I did this, 
And honestly, again, it was a joke, at, not a joke, but you know, it was not a real thing. It was not even a, a, a business. <laughs> at first, it was just a, a website. I registered the domain and it was like, oh, .com feels so commercial. So I'm gonna register .net, which felt a lot more, uh, you know, real. <laughs> it's weird to see this now. But anyway, I registered the .net and then created that website and it started to work. Uh, and it was really, for the longest time, the hosting was like, you know, 20 bucks a year or something, like very, very cheap. Um, and it was mostly for the longest time kind of a sandbox for me. And then I actually went to Chicago uh, to study. And at that point, it had grown, it had grown a lot. We were pretty good with SEO. We had like a couple hundred thousand students on the website. Um, and so I, and that was roughly the beginning of Google AdWords, uh, sorry, AdSense, uh, which is like basically the way to, for third-party sites to put Google ads on your website. And I remember tagging the website with this as like, oh, let's see how that works. And the first month, I think I generated between, I mean, not quite 10,000, but like $8,000 in ads. And all of a sudden, like, this is, this is massive, right? Like, again, this was still not a business. So I put that on my own uh, bank account uh, back in France. And my dad, who still had access to my bank account at the time, was like, what the fuck is going on? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> is this legit? It's like, yeah, of course, this is legit. Like, this is, uh, I mean, this is money from Google. And he was like, what? <laughs> What's this? Uh, and so that's when he told me, like, you can't really do that. Like, you need to create a business. Um, there is a bit more, even though the web is magic, uh, the rest of the web is not, I mean, the rest of the, not web, the rest of the world is not that magic. You need to actually go to the bank, open a bank account for the company, create a company, do all of these kind of heavy, heavy things. And I mean, we're going to talk about DAOs later, but thinking about this, it showed like already I had an idea, I mean, not an idea of like DAOs, but like already had a feeling that even though the web was magic, a lot of the stuff that we need to make, I mean, you know, non-web life work were still pretty heavy, pretty complicated. And in the end, uh, hopefully I was thinking at some point, this is going to be easier. And I think DAOs are actually the way um, I wish existed 25 years ago now. That's awesome. Okay, so so you were in, this, this was in college when you built this incredible jobs board and started to gain a lot of traction, started to actually earn a significant amount of money. And then from there, what was your what was your path after that? Yeah, so I did six years of college. I'm a slow student, uh, uh, but that was good. Uh, learned a lot of things, not just computer science, obviously, but learned a lot of things with friends, kind of lived the student life, which is good. And then I really wanted to move back to the U.S. because I did this exchange program in Chicago for a year. And the only way to go for work for, uh, I mean, to go work in the U.S. when you're just out of university in France was to go work for a French bank. They had this program, uh, which is uh, state-sponsored, that can send you abroad. And the banks in the U.S., uh, the French banks in the U.S. are the one that actually hired the most of these students. And so I applied and worked for BNP Paribas as a banker, actually, initially, which was pretty fun, in San Francisco for two years. Uh, did pretty, I mean, heavy leverage buyouts. Uh, some of our portfolio companies included uh, Camelback, which exists, Univision, the TV network, and a bunch of other things, which is doing like, you know, financial analysis of, of companies. Um, that was not, I mean, I enjoyed that work because it allowed me to go move to the US, uh, but it was not a, I mean, I knew it wasn't my, it's gonna be my life basically. Uh, and I was still running that job board for students remotely as well. Um, at that time also, I kind of were learning more about the open web, um, kind of was using RSS a lot, RSS feeds a lot uh, in feed readers. And that was the early days of the blogs, like 2006, seven, eight, uh, actually seven and eight. Uh, in 2009, basically, I created Superfeeder, and so I left the bank and created uh, a company called Superfeeder, which builds, it still exists out there, which is kind of crazy now, it's like 13 years, uh, an RSS feed API um, that allows anyone to publish and consume RSS feeds. I'm not sure your audience knows what RSS are, so maybe I'll explain. But basically, they're uh, a standard format to represent exchanges of data between two different services. And so you're right now listening to a podcast that is actually powered by RSS. It's a way uh, Andrew records or 
publishes episodes that are basically consumable by any kind of reader, whether it's you know uh, your iOS reader, your Mac reader, a web app, etc., uh, etc. Et okay, so so okay, so Superfeeder was this application that you built. That, that did what exactly with, with the RSS feeds? Yeah, so it was basically making it easier for people to publish. So, um, I mean, basically blogging platform, e-commerce sites, um, news sites, obviously podcast application, it wasn't, even though it was barely the beginning there. Uh, on one side, making it easier to publish them in real time, or on the other side, making it easier for people to consume them in real time. So basically say, uh, and it doesn't work that well for podcasts, but think like, oh, I've got this, this news site that I want really to know as soon as they publish information that they publish something. Uh, Superfeeder was able to do that basically. Okay, so, so to give a very basic example is I write a blog post uh, and I want to publish it to the world and I want everyone to be able to see it. So let's say I'm on my, my own website, my own personal website. Then so when I publish, yeah, so when I publish, it it goes through the RSS feed and that will... It goes, will, in, and, yeah, exactly. it goes into the RSS feed itself, but that still stays on your own website, basically. Uh, what, uh, what Superfeeder did was basically was able to uh, identify that you publish it uh, very soon uh, by diff using different techniques uh, and immediately pushing uh, that content to what we call subscribers. So applications themselves that would consume that content in real time. So one of the biggest consumers was actually Google search. So that's a way you can have very timely information in Google search, for example. It's amazing. Okay, so so yeah, th thank you for that. And, and so, so what did you end up doing with Superfeeder? So Superfeeder, uh, I mean, we raised money first. Uh, I would say we, but it was just me. <laughs> raised money from uh, two people, uh, Betterworks, which is this uh, venture studio out of New York. And then also more, more interestingly, or actually not more interesting, but like more funnily uh, from Mark Cuban. Uh, it's funny because I didn't know who Mark Cuban was at the time. Uh, I'd missed kind of the broadcast.com days uh, and is this billionaire who actually sold the tech companies in 99. But a friend of mine said, hey, Mark Cuban just wrote about Superfeeder on his blog. You should reach out to him. And so I was like, I reach out to Mark. And then Mark said, sure, this is interesting. Uh, uh, do you want money? Basically, that's how it happened, uh, like Shark Tank-like. Uh, and eventually invested along with, with Betaworks uh, in Superfeeder. Superfeeder became a profitable business pretty quickly. We're kind of a, a normal SaaS business, um, but never took off like millions of users, uh, even though that was kind of my goal because I felt like RSS is the open version of what Twitter and early social networks were. And so I really wanted these open web version of it to succeed, but it, it didn't grow. And that's, we're going to discuss this a bit later, I guess, but it didn't grow as much as I wanted to, even though it was profitable. Uh, eventually, Medium, the publishing platform that uh, we all know in the crypto space, uh, acquired Superfido. So they were one of our biggest customers on the publishing side and also a significant customer on the subscribing side. Uh, and when the team reached out to, hey, we're going to double down on RSS. Do you want to come join the team? And I said, yeah, why not? Let's, let's think about this. And they eventually offered to acquire Superfeeder. And, and so, um, so that was a pretty good, uh, pretty good outcome. Um, and I joined Medium and worked there for about two and a half years. That's amazing. Okay, so how was the experience working at Medium? Uh, it was it was interesting. Look, first, that was literally my first tech job, right? Like as, as a founder, I wouldn't really qualify that as a job. So I learned a lot of things like 
I mean, working with a team of people, and that was kind of an interesting learning for me, uh, again, because I'd been kind of this solo entrepreneur until then my whole life. Uh, and then Medium had, a, at the time, and I think it's still the case, a very good internal culture, like a lot of very uh, good engineers, uh, people coming from Google, very deeply knowledgeable about the web. So it was really interesting. Uh, the challenge, though, is that Medium was already struggling with its business model. And that's the thing that um, when I joined, they didn't have this membership model, which we'll discuss also, I guess, a bit later. Uh, they were still trying to think about monetization around ads. And we did put some ads. I don't remember which brand that was, but like a pr pretty big brand. Uh, and the results that we're getting uh, were abysmal. We're not getting good results at all. And so that's when kind of we pulled the plug on the idea of monetizing with ads, saying, hey, you know what? It, it wouldn't work for Medium. Like the, the, the revenue that we would make were, were too low or we would have to completely degrade the reading experience. And that was kind of contrary to the Medium vision. So we, what we ended up doing was uh, working on that membership model where basically people, uh, medium users, would pay $5 a month uh, to unlock, and pun intended here, uh, features, content, or status on the, on the platform. Um, and it was really kind of an experiment around like what are people willing to pay for between these three things. Like features, we had a way to kind of, uh, you know, uh, text-to-speech uh, the, uh, the, the medium stories. So that was kind of one of the features that we offered uh, for premium for paying members. The second was content, even though there was very little content at first, uh, there's already a little bit of original content that was only available for members. And then the last one, which was ended up being one of the most, most important one was the idea of the status. Like people, when they are a medium member, they get a green halo around their avatar. And when we did surveys in the next few weeks about why people uh, ended up paying, because a lot of people ended up paying. I mean, I was surprised, like thousands of people ended up paying for medium uh, membership, even though there was nothing behind it. Uh, when we asked people, they say, oh, the halo, the, the status is a big factor of why I pay for medium, which was kind of interesting to us. Um, that's the time where I realized like, you know, this uh, information wants to be free kind of thing uh, is, I don't want to say bullshit, but like, I think we misunderstood it. Uh, we assumed that this meant that we wouldn't pay for things, but in practice, it doesn't mean that we wouldn't pay. It means that uh, we wouldn't censor things. Uh, people are actually fine paying for valuable things online. And that was actually pretty already the case uh, because people paid for apps, for example, massive amounts of money, like, you know, Candy Crush, I think on their whales, they make more than a couple hundred dollars a month from whales and even from casual users, they make a couple dozen, I mean, not dozen, but like a couple dollars a month from, from users. So it felt like, you know what, if you actually make it easy for people to pay, if you make it kind of obvious why they pay and what they pay for, if you ask for a few dollars, um, a lot of them will actually do it because they care about supporting the mission, the vision. And also that's kind of a, a fair exchange uh, so that you don't have to put ads, you don't have to steal data and, I mean, you know, invade privacy and things like this. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So what are your current thoughts on, on the like business model of the internet as it stands today? Because I feel like it's very ad prevalent. And because of that, it's, it's encouraging, you know, outrage and encouraging, you know, people to get angry because that gets the most engagement, most engagement gets the most money, et cetera. So, so what do you, what are your, your general thoughts on that current structure as it is today? Yeah, I think it's unhealthy. That's, that's exactly the, the thing that, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm worried about, about the web. Like if you think about the, the web, I, I tend to think of the web as kind of our collective brain, right? It's like how we work together, how we interact, how we socialize, how we create all of these things together. And it's kind of a collective brain that has a, you know, a weird incentive structure where basically the people that are getting paid the most are the one that are able to steal or trigger us the most in, in that way. Uh, and by, I mean, to trigger people, unfortunately, uh, you have to show 
I mean, ugly things, or you have to make them upset, you have to make them angry, you have to make that, I mean, making people, you know, uh, happy doesn't pay well. Uh, it's, it's sad, but I think it's how we, we work collectively. And if we incentivize for this too much, we'll end up with, you know, not, not just fake news, but like information overload. All of a sudden, somebody creates a lot more content. I remember when BuzzFeed was out, somebody was like, oh, they're so much better because they write hundreds of stories per day when the, you know, the traditional media actually are not able to do that. And it was like, I mean, if you write hundred of, hundred of crappy stories, is it better than five good stories? I don't think so. But clearly, from a from a financial perspective, it's better to write a hundred of crappy stories than five great ones. And so that made me. Re I mean, that that whole business model around attention, I think, is is yeah, again, uh, dangerous. I don't want to say just bad because it's, there there is some ways in which it, I think it's necessary in some way, and it, it will always exist. But I think if we only optimize for this, it's dangerous. And that's how we end up with information overload, with clickbait, obviously. Like, and you'll never know what happens with it's like this, this, this is crap, right? Uh, and it's always disappointing when you click on this in, in the end. Uh, you end up also with fake news because in the end, it doesn't matter whether something is true or false. What matters is like it's, you're going to click on it and you're going to read it uh, and you're going to be outraged by it and you're going to share it with your friends. Even if it's fake and you don't have time. Like, I mean, when people say, oh, check your sources, like, I mean, nobody has time to do that and nobody has the resources. So we should rather, I mean, yes, we should have mechanisms to verify the data. I'm not saying we shouldn't have this. But I think more importantly, we should have better incentives around making sure that the people who create crap are not going to be richer than the people that actually create valuable content. Um, so yeah, very unhealthy model. Uh, and I hope we're moving away from this. But I think we are, actually. I think that's something that is changing and that crypto is making, I'd say, even easier. Yeah, it's almost like adding everyone onto this global communication platform and making the incentive for them to get angry is like, you're going to have some bad consequences. From exactly, that probably, exactly. So. I mean, I don't yeah. want to, I mean, you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of a cliche to say, oh, the 2016 election, but it's not just that. Like all of the stuff around, you know, the anti-vax, the flat earthers. I mean, a lot of people are complotists these days. And I think it's because in the end, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to defend them, but like, I think it's also because in the end, we fed them with so much crap that they're lost. And I think it makes sense at some point that people are lost when the, the stuff that they've fed their brains with have been of so low quality for such a long time. That makes a ton of sense. Okay, so, so I kind of see where your kind of initial attraction to crypto is coming from. But I'd love to hear from you. How did you first learn about crypto and what was your initial attraction? Yeah, so it's actually, it's funny because I mean, I, I'm, as I said earlier, I'm slow. Uh, the first time I actually interfaced with crypto was in 2000, I think 2011, probably 12 maybe. Uh, one of my contractors on Superfeeder told me about Bitcoin. Uh, and he was like, oh, I want to be paid in Bitcoin. And I was like, what's Bitcoin? Like, I have no idea what that is. Uh, and so I had to uh, buy uh, Bitcoin on Mt. Gox, uh, which was this uh, exchange. I think people know of Mt. Gox a little bit. Exchange uh, that got hacked and kind of a massive story. But anyway, I ended up buying some Bitcoin on Mt. Gox. Um, and that was really also, that's when it's like, I was doing Superfeeder, which is an open web thing. And the, the guy who told me about Bitcoin was like, hey, you should look at this because this is obviously decentralized. Uh, it's, it's not quite like RSS, obviously, but it's in the same movement of like these, idea, I mean, decentralized, um, uh, you know, censorship resistant web. Uh, and that's the first time I discovered Bitcoin. I bought some Bitcoin at the time, not enough to be uh, massively rich these days, uh, but, you know, enough to be uh, interested in this. And then I, I kind of stayed on the sideline, did not really get involved. And then a good friend of mine uh, from actually from, from daycare, I think, uh, 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 who became a VC uh, in Switzerland, told me about Ethereum. Um, and it was 
I think at the time where Ethereum was still a testnet and say, hey, you should look at this. This is really interesting. This is kind of the idea of the Web3, decentralized web, blah, blah, blah. And at the time I looked at this and it was obviously very early and things were still very, very tough. Like you had to download Mist, uh, which I'm sure some of your early um, uh, Ethereum fans know about, which is like this very first that browser in some way. So web browser that actually had a, an injected Web3 wallet in it uh, and told my friend Jan like, hey, I mean, yes, this is interesting, but also way too complicated. Like, I mean, how is this going to go anywhere? So again, like second time and still uh, didn't get involved. When I was at Medium, that's when actually I started discovering things first because we had a lot of crypto content on the platform and that was kind of intriguing to me, but also because um, I was researching ways. So when we did, when Medium did this membership model, uh, one of the challenges that we had is like, we wanted to pay writers and Medium does pay writers, which is good. But we were trying to find a mechanism to pay writers anywhere in the world. Uh, and the challenge was that we didn't really have ways to do that uh, because uh, we were using Stripe and Stripe was only at the time available in the US uh, for that uh, kind of chargeback mechanism that we used to pay people. And so we looked at like, oh, we could use uh, cryptocurrencies to pay people, you know, in India, in Australia, in Chile, in, you know, France. Um, and so that's when I was like, oh, cryptocurrencies are interesting. And I remember at the time we could use cryptocurrencies to pay people. But then that's when also I stumbled upon Steam, Steamit, uh, which again, some people might know, which is kind of a, think of it as a dig. And again, maybe people don't know what dig is. Think of it as a Reddit like thing built on crypto, uh, which was, uh, and there's been a bunch of drama there, kind of already kind of token incentivized communities to kind of create content. And that's when I realized like, oh, okay, this whole Bitcoin thing, uh, or even this whole Ethereum thing, it's about a lot more than just money. It is about, again, this building incentive structure that are uh, incentivizing people to build or do things for a community of, 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 of users. And so that's really when I started to kind of dive into crypto. It's amazing. Okay, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on DAOs because we, we briefly touched upon them before. And I'd love to hear just what, what, your, what your general thoughts on DAOs are. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, to me, that's, that's, that's one of the most exciting things that we have not touch the surface. And even though there is a lot more uh, things happening these days uh, around obviously uh, governance and things like this, I think we still don't fully grasp what DAOs are able to do um, without going into like the theory of like, you know, theory of their firm, uh, which is kind of a, a Nobel Prize that told us that basically people work through corporations because transaction costs uh, to work uh, in a peer-to-peer -peer fashion are too high. Um, I do think though that DAOs are the way to make that happen and will eventually replace a lot of the, you know, um, uh, institutional, sorry, structures like companies, not all companies, but some companies, uh, some, you know, association, NGOs, a lot of these things eventually are going to be replaced by DAOs. I tend to think, and I know this is kind of controversial, that the first DAO is actually Bitcoin. Um, it's in some way people, you know, in random countries decide to buy I mean, now a very expensive miner, but at the time, you know, a, a GPU or, or even a CPU in the early days and kind of put it into a plug and work uh, for the matrix in some way. Like they work for the system without really being paid by any, you know, boss or anything like this. Like the system pays them because they work for the system. And it really feels to me like the, the first DAO in a sense, like it's obviously decentralized, it's autonomous, like where there's no one telling people what to do. And it's an organization in a sense that everybody works for, toward the same goal, which is kind of mining these blocks and, and creating security for the network. So for me, Bitcoin was the first DAO. But if you go back a, a bit before, like stuff like Wikipedia, it's not quite a DAO, but there is already the idea of like people showing up in a, you know, in a, 
permissionless, decentralized way and get it working for the system. So in the case of Wikipedia writing articles or, or, or fixing articles or improving articles uh, without being told by anyone else, not being quite paid, even though there is kind of a reputation mechanism that is, is again, not quite like a payment, but definitely has some transactional aspects that eventually are valuable. Um, so that's the idea. Uh, obviously, crypto network make this a hundred times easier. Uh, and I do think that we're, again, barely scratched the surface of what is possible with DAOs. And I can't wait to see them uh, kind of flourish at scale. So do you think that DAOs will replace more traditional companies going forward? Or do you think that more companies will kind of become DAO-like entities, that they'll become these kind of weirder, more equitable structures comparative to like an LLC or like a corporation? Yeah, I mean, I think both. I think basically there's going to be some LLCs, corporation, or again, maybe not quite LLCs, but like I would assume initially a lot of nonprofit companies, like, you know, the B Corps in the US, will become some kind of version of a DAO, uh, where basically people work uh, in a completely uh, ad hoc way. Uh, for a smart contract because in the end they don't work for somebody else they work for the contract and they prove that they've done the work for the to the contract and then the contract pays them in, in its native currency so I do think that yes we'll see some of these companies evolve toward this but I think more importantly or maybe we're going to see new kinds of organization like in some way I mean I, I doubt that you know uh, the, the, the car manufacturing company or the you know the, the company that produces food is going to be replaced by a DAO but I think we'll see the emergence of new kind of structures uh, that are going to appear that are going to do new kinds of work and again like things like Wikipedia could be a DAO uh, if, if Wikipedia were to invent it today I think it would look a lot more like a DAO uh, than it does look like uh, a firm or something like this so I, I think in the end it's, it's what's interesting about it is like it's not going to just replace it's going to invent new structures of people People working collectively and we're going to see a, a whole class of new you know we have the independent worker we have the contractor we have the employee uh we'll have the DAO worker i don't know what's the <laughs> what's the how to describe them but there's going to be a lot of people that eventually work uh again not for a company but for smart contracts such a such a cool vision that's such a weird and like kind of exciting thought and and something that i think is going to happen uh, probably is happening right now in, in some forms. It, it is happening, right? Like I, I'm pretty sure it is already happening, exactly what you said. And maybe one thing that I tend to think a, a lot about uh, without going too philosophical, but like public goods are some of the things that have been harder to manage. Like public goods in the sense of like, oh, you know, the water pipelines or the electric uh, power grid or the, or the, uh, I mean, the air that we breathe uh, have been hard to manage. And in the end, usually we manage them through kind of governance, through like these, uh, you know, uh, nation or, or municipalities owned or controlled entities. I think in the end, one of the things that DAOs will do pretty well is actually manage this, uh, these things in, in a way that is kind of all of, the, all of the citizens in a country or in a city co-own, have shares in the DAO uh, and they vote on who does what, for the DAO and people work for this with and removing kind of the need for the municipality uh, and kind of cronyism that usually tends to happen or unfortunately happens too often uh, at that level and not I mean and that's true for again p power or water but it's also true for if you think about uh, I mean the fiber uh, in New York City for example where I think uh, Verizon has some kind of like um, a mandate but has been slow to deploy even though at this point the internet is a public good. Okay, wait, that, that's, I want to dive deeper in that because that's super interesting. Okay, so you could envision a future where New York City's power is is governed and operated by a DAO, but how would that be 
wouldn't that be worse to have that friction of like governance in there comparative to a a centralized authority that's like, okay, guys, we have the power, everything's good, like, don't worry about it, we don't need to vote on anything, right? Or, or how are you kind of seeing this? I mean, this I, play think, out? I think this is going to be a, a hybrid between the two. Like, the DAO doesn't mean that everybody votes on everything, right? Like, there is going to be a delegation of vote toward people that are believed to be good maintainers uh, or good, I mean, stewards for, for, for the grid, right? But you can imagine a situation where, I don't know, a neighborhood says, yeah, you know what, we're co-owners of, of the, the New York uh, power grid, basically, and we want to invest in deploying this new, I don't know, solar farm, solar firm, uh, solar farm sorry, there. Uh, and, and when they do so, basically, the people in the neighborhood are basically, you know, submitting a proposal and say, hey, we'll all deposit, I don't know, 10 die, 100 die, whatever that is, like, I don't know if it's die, but, you know, will all deposit some money. And if enough money gets deposited, uh, boom, some contractor is being designated by the smart contract, or maybe there's also a vote for this to actually deploy that uh, that uh, solar farm grid or solar farm in on, on rooftops. I don't know if that's a, a good example, but like that would be the idea, like people collectively co-owning the infrastructure, the shared public good that they all use and rely on. Um, and eventually not just vote on these things, but like it's assuming that the all of a sudden the electricity, I mean, the farm does well, everybody pays less electricity and it becomes kind of, again, a profit shared between all of the people that have, uh, that live in that neighborhood. That's, that's a super cool vision, I, I love that. All right, all right. So, how did you first learn about NFTs, and how did you fall down the NFT rabbit hole? Yeah, so it's funny because I, I think I, I mean, unlock, uh, and we'll talk about unlock a bit later. But like, basically, when I left Medium to create this protocol for membership, uh, which is uh, what I, what unlock is about, and, and really the reason why I left unlock, I looked at ways to represent memberships, uh, and the membership is like me being a part of the people that support your work, or me being one of the uh, contributors to the New York Times that give me access to some articles. Um, it's like, how can we represent these memberships? And I was like, oh, in the physical world, memberships, you know, you use badges, you would use kind of members cards. And I was like, well, how, I mean, they're not quite currencies. Like it's not, I can't really pay with five members card for something. They're really kind of unique in that sense. And that's like, oh, what's the way to represent unique things on the blockchain? And it was kind of the the CryptoKitties early days. And that's when I realized that, oh, <laughs> CryptoKitties, yes, they're unique, but memberships are unique as well. And so that's when I realized that we should use the NFT ERC721 specification. So it was it was before the NFT for art kind of thing exploded. It was really more around the collectible kind of unique items. Uh, at the time, there was people trying to call them not so much NFTs, but you know, unique collectibles, uh, NFTs, which was already kind of non-fungible in that way. Um, but yeah, it wasn't. It was before the use case for art, and I actually still think, and maybe that's that's a, a bit controversial, but like, I do still think that the art use case of NFTs is is a great one, but it's also extremely limiting. It's like saying we've created the web just to show nice JPEGs. It's like feels like yeah, sure, you can show nice JPEGs on the web, but you can do a lot more things with NFTs. Awesome. Okay, so we've been talking a bit about it, but I'd love to hear about the company that you founded, Unlock Protocol. What is it and why is it exciting? Yeah, so actually, uh, <laughs> quick clarification. The company I founded is called Unlock Inc. Uh, and the goal of Unlocking is to create a protocol called Unlock. So it, maybe it's a bit confusing uh, and should have thought a bit more about this. But yeah, the idea of Unlock is this. As exactly like Medium did, we mentioned a couple of minutes uh, earlier, Medium moved to the membership model and uh, was actually able to make a significant amount of money with, uh, with this. New York Times, Netflix, Spotify, clearly there is a world in which creators are monetizing not through attention, not through ads, but through 
you know, membership by saying, hey, you support my work, give me five bucks, give me one dollar, give me ten dollar a year, a month, whatever that is, uh, and then I'll keep working on this. Uh, so that membership aspect was something that is like, oh, this works for these platforms. It should work for the whole web. It should be able. It should be something that any creator in Guatemala, in Mongolia, in France, in Germany, in in Spain, in Italy, you know, you name it, in uh, whatever kind of creator they are. They're a software developer. They're a musician. They're a blogger. They're a journalist. They're you know just a community organizer. Um, all of these people should be able to create easily a membership, um, and then sell these memberships to their you know their fan base. Their crowd, their tribe, uh, and, and if enough people do so, then they can make a living out of this and they can keep doing their art, their work, their creation, basically. And so that really was the idea of Unlocks, like, let's make it easy for any creator to deploy a membership contract, which we call a lock, uh, and it's obviously a, an NFT smart contract on the Ethereum blockchain, and then sell access memberships in the form of NFTs. So whenever somebody purchases a, a membership, they get an NFT that actually represents that, that membership. Make sense? Yeah. So, okay. So this is a game changer because it is comparative to the traditional model where I go to Substack, I enter my credit card, I subscribe to, uh, let's say Julian's, you know, Substack. Substack. Then I pain. go to, yeah. uh, you know, I don't know, Netflix and I subscribe. To it. Like, is this just one universal protocol that everyone could utilize for that is exactly subscriptions? That. Yes, okay. that's exactly. And not just subscription, right? Like membership. It's like subscription has the idea of like the recurring aspects. I think there's a lot of membership that are not recurring. Like, for example, next week, I'm going to EFCC in Paris, which is a conference. Um, and tickets to a conference are one-off memberships. You're a member of the conference for the three days of the conference. Uh, after this, you don't need to, you know, it's not recurring. It doesn't happen again. So it's really, again, this membership can be recurring, can be expensive, can be cheap, can be... Uh, forever can be for a short time can give you access to some members only stuff or can be just about status uh, we have uh, we've worked with github uh, to allow people to kind of support their favorite um, you know open source developers and you can purchase an nft that shows that you support a specific uh, open source project um, that is non-recurring you can say hey i'm going to give you five bucks and i'll sh this way i show that i'm one of your supporters one of your uh, fans one of your creators uh, one of your patrons in that way all right, so why is it important that memberships be in the form of an NFT? Um, that's a good question. Um, in the end, I think the membership itself needs to be represented. Uh, so making a payment for something is not enough to show that you're a member of something else. Like one thing that is always kind of disappointing is the fact that the only way I know that I'm a subscriber to some things online sometimes is because I get the receipt on my credit card statement. And that's not a great experience. Uh, so making sure that the membership is represented as something is something that we wanted to do um, when we created Unlock. And clearly, it was unique. Uh, my membership to your podcast is unique. Uh, your membership to Netflix is unique. Uh, and because it's yours uh, or because it's mine in the other example. And so in that way, uh, the NFT um, um, format uh, was the most obvious one. Um, and that allows for a lot of things uh, like transferring and things like this. That's so true about the kind of the credit card because I only know what I'm subscribed to after I get charged, which 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 you're correct is not a great you know experience. Yeah, it's painful, so, right? Like, and even for creators, if you think about this, the only way I think about you is when I see your name on my credit card segment. That kind of sucks. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So so okay. So if I'm subscribed to let's say you know your your Substack, can I transfer my membership to I don't know my friend Bob? And then you know he can go check out your Substack, or how how does that work? Yeah, so let's let's be clear. First, Substack is actually not supporting the protocol, so right now Substack wouldn't work. But 
the day they support the protocol, yes, it would work. Um, as a matter of fact, on my blog, for example, which you can go to, uh, it's ouvrebot, O-U-V-R-E-B-O-I-T-E.com. You can go there and I've got a membership and you can read the content only, or some of the content only if you're a member. And yes, if you are a member, you can transfer your membership to John, Bob, whatever. And then at that point, you can't read anymore, but John or Bob, whoever you transferred it to, can actually read my content at that point. Uh, what's even more interesting is that we, we created this thing where we called these partial transfers. So my NFT, say I've got, you've got a membership to my blog for a month, you can say, hey, I'm gonna send just one day off of that month to Bob. And so now you're left with 29 days uh, and then Bob has one day, uh, which means that he can read the content for a day and then you can read it for 29. That's awesome. Okay, I, I just thought of this. If if I was able to, like if I fractionalized my membership, could I give someone a fraction and and they use the full membership or or what you're talking about is, is something different. But if I want to like, you know, unically and actually fractionalize this, would I, would that be possible? Would I be able to give someone a fraction they access Yes. Your, your yeah, actually, I mean, that's, yes, it is possible. Like you can transfer again, uh, you know, a, say you've got 30 days, you can transfer a day of this 30 days. And so now you're left with 29 and that recipient has one. And so they get access to my blog for a day while you can still enjoy the blog for 29 days. And really the idea that we had when we did this was not so much for like a day worth of my content. It's really around like paywall links. Say the New York Times article is really interesting. I want to share it with you right now. If I send you the link and you're not a member, well, you can't read it. And it's kind of pointless because I, I don't even know whether you're a member or not. And so it kind of wastes an opportunity for them, for the New York Times to be able to have this content being shared. But what it could do though, if they were using Unlock is send you the link along with say 15 minutes, 20 minutes. I don't know what is the duration of that article that you'd spend reading, but like enough time for you to read it off of my own membership. Obviously I'm making you a little gift. I'm, I'm giving you again, some time off of my membership. But if I think the article is interesting, I think you should actually read it. And then doing that is something that I think is very valuable for, for everyone. That's so cool. And also like kind of going deeper, the you can get a lot of insights into your into your community, like by by looking at you know who's who's transferring to who. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and and then also like just just like the kind of uh, I'm thinking about like you know loyalty programs, and if, if you can say if you can see okay you know uh, Julian's been a subscriber for X amount of time, I'm gonna you know I'm gonna reward him with I don't know some gifts something like that. I think that's a really cool. It's almost like it's, it's like the starting point for a broader engagement with your audience or Absolutely. Deeper One thing that I do on my blog, and it's kind of, again, a bit of a gimmick, but it's, I think, pretty fun, is like, if you don't want to purchase a membership, um, I tell you it's fine. You just have to tweet uh, that you want a membership to me by giving me your Ethereum address, and then I'll send you not a full month-long membership. It's actually a year-long on my blog. So not a, a year-long membership, but just a day. So I'll give you a free trial of a day, basically, um, if you tweet that you want one. And so that is a way for me to kind of make sure that my content is being kind of discovered and seen by people on Twitter, uh, while at the same time kind of giving you a free access if you really want to do this. And if you enjoy my blog at some point, then I assume that you'll become a subscriber. That's awesome. Yeah, that, that's so cool. All right, so so do you can you imagine in, in the future there's gonna be kind of a marketplace for all sorts of different types of membership? I'm absolutely convinced that it's gonna happen. Uh, and and, and you, the way you said it, like all types of membership is exactly the crux of it, right? Like there's gonna be a market for Netflix memberships, for New York Times membership, for all kinds of software, because if you think about, um, you know, um, one thing that I tell all the time is like when you do in-app purchases, where you're playing a game and you want to unlock a level, that's a membership. You you become a member of that level in the game. It's kind of a weird way to describe this, but the pattern is the same. And so I do think there's going to be all kinds of 
as you said, all kinds of membership, uh, allowing people to do all kinds of strange things uh, like purchase and sell uh, memberships from one another uh, and do these kind of things. Okay, so so kind of going off that, you know, if, if, if I'm Netflix, I I don't want people to, to use this because it's too much power for the user. I, I want them to get charged and not realize that they're getting charged. Like, what, why, as a big company, why would I adopt this? As a startup, it makes a ton of sense, but as a big company, I want more more power, more money. I actually don't know that you don't want that as Netflix. Like, um, you, I mean, the worst situation for Netflix is like when somebody doesn't watch Netflix for six months and then just wakes up and then is very frustrated about the fact that they've paid for six months and they got nothing out of this because at that point, they will just unsubscribe and they will take a lot more time to subscribe again, if ever, right? Because at, at that point, the brand is kind of burnt. People are frustrated with the fact that they've spent so much money for nothing. So I do think that in the end, brands um, in Netflix their incentive is for you to use your membership. It's, for, of course, to keep you as a member, but for you to use it. And if you don't use it, maybe the second best thing that they can do is to actually have somebody else use it instead of you. And so, because again, that somebody else is gonna be, at some point, a loyal customer, uh, maybe a paying customer. And then it's, again, from a, if you consider the, uh, the, the other option, which is, I just don't use Netflix anymore, and I'm really frustrated with the fact that I've paid for six months or for a year for that thing that I've never used, is not a good experience for them either. Yeah, the, 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 I feel like that, that's a pretty pretty fair argument, but but like from a from a company standpoint, I, I actually make more money when people are inefficient. What you're building or what you have built creates more efficiencies. But then also, what you pointed out, whereas you know, as as a big company or as any company, I would prefer that more people get exposed to my product. So it's actually better in, in that sense. So so it's kind of like you're 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 giving up on some. Uh, you're creating more efficiencies, which is not good for your bottom line necessarily. But then also you're introducing it, it, you know, the, your product to more customers. So at and the same you're creating time, loyalty at this, right? Like I, I, I agree with you. Like a lot of businesses make money out of inefficiencies, but these are generally not the businesses that people like <laughs> and enjoy and want to do business with, right? So I do. I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that one of the ways that a lot of businesses um, can make money is by creating very loyal um, uh, fan bases and member bases. And if you want, I mean, to do that, um, I do think that making sure that your customers are happy and not being kind of, you know, I don't want to say for subscribe, but like subscribe by accident is not the right way. Uh, again, these are brands that eventually get tarnished and people get frustrated and worried and, and not interested in, in using them uh, anymore. Totally. Okay. So do you think that this technology has the potential to kind of restructure the web in a positive way in the sense that right now the, the web is really driven by ads, which means it's basically driven by outrage because, you know, outrage creates the most engagement. So, so do, yeah, do, what, what are your thoughts on, on kind of that, that, that idea? Yeah, so that's exactly, I mean, that is absolutely the goal of Unlock is to kind of exactly what you said, kind of change the incentives around content creation and around the web in general. It's like making sure that creators are, are rewarded based on the value that they create for their members, basically whatever, whatever money they're willing to pay rather than whatever attention they're able to steal from these people. So it really is the end goal is to, again, make sure that we have a system where every creator can work and monetize their work on their own terms without uh, having to resort to uh, techniques that would, uh, you know, try to steal their users and their fans' attention. So yes, I do think that in the end, it changes completely the dynamic around the web. All right, so, so how does Unlock make money today or how do you guys plan on making money in the future? Yeah, definitely. Uh, we make money uh, using basically our credit card gateway. So we've built something pretty interesting. So 
obviously I love and I want everyone to eventually have a wallet. That's my goal and priority, right? The challenge though is that even though I want this to happen, it's gonna take a lot of time. And in the meantime, what we think is important is to allow people that don't have crypto wallet to easily subscribe to content that they care about. And so for this, we built a credit card integration that allows people who don't have a crypto wallet to easily purchase memberships. When people use a credit card, we take a small fee uh, to actually cover um, some of the credit card costs. Um, and that's one way Unlock Inc. makes money. Make sense? Yeah, awesome. Okay, so, okay, so, and then also you, you mentioned previously that you guys basically have a a non-custodial wallet, which is obviously makes uh, you know the, the the user experience super easy compared to today, where it's like seed phrase and kind of writing that down, storing your safe, whatever. So, so can you can you just talk more about that non-custodial wallet? Yeah, definitely. So um, it is basically uh, like um, a Web two account where you have an email and a password. Um, the email you use you use to log in on uh, basically inside of unlock app uh, inside of unlock's uh, system and then you use your password and in practice the password itself is obviously not stored in our database or anywhere but is even not stored at all in its form it's just used to encrypt the private key and so the mechanism that we use is actually something pretty simple where when you create an account we create on the front end we're going to go technical here but on the front end we create a private key a completely random one using your machine. Uh, and we don't tell you as a user because you don't need to worry about these things. And then we encrypt that private key with your password. Uh, once this is done, we basically forget the private key. We actually never access it. Uh, and when you want to log in, the only thing that you have to do is come give us your email address. At that point, the, the backend server yields or serves uh, the encrypted private key that you have and then we ask you to type your password and if the password decrypts the private key then we know it's the right password if it doesn't then we consider that it's not the right password and that you shouldn't be logged in does that make sense yeah so so do you guys like delete the the the, the you know let's say i just signed up do you guys delete the private key that i just created or or you know how, it's how, never how stored you, anywhere sure it's, it, it's never stored anywhere so we don't even need to okay. delete it it's actually just in your web browser like we never you know store it on our, uh, on our end uh what's I don't know if it's cool, but uh, what's useful uh, about these accounts to remember is like we actually never store cryptocurrencies. We just use them as identities, right? We never tell the user there's, an, I mean, they don't need to know, but if they wanted to, they can actually export them, but they, they don't have to, you know, send funds or any of these things. We just use these addresses as a way to have an identity for the user on chain. So their user one, two, three, user one, two, three has um, uh, an identity, I mean, a zero X one, two, three, and then we can ask them to purchase their membership with the credit card in a way that allows then them to, you know, become members to website that they enjoy. Awesome. Okay. So, so how do you guys think about acquiring users? Like, and also not, not only how do you guys think about it, how do you actually mechanically do that? Yeah, uh, I mean, basically at this point, we're doing this through integrations. So we're uh, working with a lot of different companies uh, or projects to integrate unlocking at their core of their application. So for example, there's a video platform that I'm really looking forward to called Content Rooms that is uh, un uh, adding unlock to their to their stuff. And it, you think of it as kind of an OnlyFans kind of scenario where you can create a, a content room, a video room, and then only your members can access the content in the video room. So that's one of the things. We have people built integration in Decentraland. So Decentraland is obviously, as you know, 
uh, a metaverse, an online game, and people can unlock access to some specific venues inside of Decentraland. We have integration in blogs. As I mentioned, my blog is, is one of them, but there's integration for WordPress, which is the most popular WordPress um, blogging mechanism out there. Um, and I mean, blog creators can easily deploy a membership there. We have people creating bots for Discord, for Telegram. We have integration in, in Shopify. And so that's how we go at this point about acquiring users is by making sure there is many, many different applications that enable um, creators to use Unlock there. At some point, our goal is to have, you know, you mentioned Substack earlier. At some point, is our goal is to tell Substack, hey, you should, it's not about Unlock Inc., right? It's not about me. It's about letting creators that have a membership using Unlock just use Substack and give access to their um, Unlock members. Awesome. Okay, so so how do you think that Unlock will evolve over time? Pretty broad question, but where do you, where do you kind of, yeah, where do you see it kind of uh, more products, more services? Where do you kind of see that going? Yeah, so definitely more product, more services. In the end, I, I mentioned, right, in-app purchases, every single native app game should use Unlock as a way to monetize. And that the, the benefit of this is like it takes them away from the kind of capture that Apple and Google make on fees. But also, I mean, yes, they take 30%. I think that's outrageous and it sucks. But I think the worst part of this is like they decide how and what you can monetize inside of your application like it's they don't give full control to creators and the point of unlock is really to let creators do whatever they want with their membership whatever benefits they want to do they want to do kind of a one day long membership they can they want to do a, a thousand year long membership they can they want to do a membership that gives uh, users access to dark mode they can they want to give a membership to users that allows them to i don't know um see special content or translate the content on the page they can so really it's about um enabling users to creativity. Where does Unlock go specifically? Again, everywhere, but really we want it to be something that belongs to everyone. And so a couple of weeks ago, we, we actually launched our Unlock DAO, which is a way for all of the Unlock users to, uh, again, vote on the upgrades and decide the upgrades of the protocol. So it's the idea that if you use the protocol, you're going to accrue Unlock tokens. It's a governance token, uh, very similar to um, you know airline miles in that way. Uh, and, and these miles, specifically in the context of Unlock, will actually allow you to vote and decide on how the protocol should work, what it should do with some of its treasury, and things like this. My goal eventually is to, I mean, I don't want to say disappearing to the void because I hope I'm not disappearing into the void, but you know, kind of be irrelevant. Uh, have the protocol be something that is used by millions of people, um, billions of, of people even, um, without us, Unlock Inc. and me specifically be part of that picture specifically. I should be like anybody else using the protocol. Awesome. Okay. So, okay. So I guess right now you, you are the founder. So tell me like, what are, what are the you know, best things about being a founder? And then what are some of the hardest things about being a founder? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, best thing i think it's you know seeing your vision being executed and to me that's one of the most exciting things is like i've had a bunch of these ideas that i just discussed for like three four years now and kind of seeing them appear in the wild one after the other is definitely the best feeling it's like oh uh being able to you know shape the things and make them happen is, is just the most amazing feeling. The hardest part is obviously, I mean, there's a lot of very hard part, but one of the hard part is the loneliness, is the feeling that, hey, I have this vision, I see this world. How can I transfer, I mean, how can I brain dump my vision of the world into other people's brains? And that's great. I'm, that's why I'm excited to do podcasts. Uh, and, and Zima is actually very good at this. Um, I, I'm. It's frustrating sometimes to see this and feel like very few people see it yet. And so, and so that's the hardest part as a founder. It's kind of the loneliness in the vision. It's like, oh, I see this world. Why am I the only one seeing it? Or why does it take so much time for me to transfer and bring up my ideas to other people and things like that? 
Awesome. Okay, so, all right, 10 years in the future, snap your fingers, we're there. Is Unlock, like, used on Netflix, used for Amazon? Like, like, is it, like, like tell me your vision about where, where, it, where it is and what it's used for. Yeah, it's used for Netflix and Amazon, but more than Netflix and Amazon, it is used by creators on these platforms, right? Like, somebody is, a, I mean, a creator on Netflix is making a show, uh, and then they'll tell Netflix, hey, Netflix, uh, it's accessible to the people that have the Netflix membership, but please also give access to the people that have my, my special show membership or, you know, that are fans of my... I don't know, uh, of, of my previous show or something like this. So that's one way, similar with Amazon. Yes, Amazon Prime is an unlocked membership. Um, so that's amazing. I have the Prime NFT in my wallet. Uh, and so that's part of the vision. But also uh, when I show up on Amazon, um, the fact that I'm um, you know, a Zima Red uh, subscriber and member means that I get discounts on some uh, audio swag. Uh, I want to, or swag products. Like I want to buy a new uh, microphone a new, a new Yeti microphone. We just mentioned Yeti together. Uh, I want to buy a new Yeti microphone and I get maybe a discount because I'm uh, one of Zima's uh, fans and members. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's so cool. Okay, so like, what what what, what do you even call that future? Is that like a like token enabled future or, or like, like what do you... I mean, I, is, I'm, I'm old school. I call it the web, right? I think it's actually the yeah. initial vision of the web. It's really what it was meant to be. I think it got perverted be, because of this uh, ad-driven business model. But yeah, that's... That is, in my mind, that is what the web is for and why and how it should have been designed from the beginning. Amazing. Awesome. All right. Well, Julian, this has been this has been amazing. And, uh, you know, I, I want to keep talking on and on, but we, 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 we got to jump into the closing questions. Of course, definitely. And I'm, I mean, I'm as excited as, as you are. So definitely understand. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, what is your single favorite NFT that you own? Yeah, um, a couple of weeks ago, I was very lucky to uh, uh, buy a Blitmap. And the reason why I love Blitmap is because um, these are some of the NFTs that, uh, you know, have uh, all of their data on chain. So the image is generated by the smart contract itself. It's not like a, it's not an image stored on some server or even IPFS. The NFT is completely self-contained. And that's actually a, an idea that I like very much is the idea that uh, even though it's expensive to store stuff on chain, you can actually generate um, NFTs, but beyond that, kind of all kinds of data on the Ethereum chain in ways that would um, make them truly permissionless and decentralized. That's awesome. And they're called bitmaps? Blitmaps, I think. Yeah, blitmaps. Blitmaps. Okay, very cool. That, that, that sounds awesome. All right. W- what is your most controversial thought relating to crypto or NFTs? Uh, I mean, I have a very controversial thought about NFT, but I think it's pretty shared at this point. I don't know if it's very controversial. It's the idea that uh, they're way more than, you know, art. Um, and as much as I love my Blitmap, I think it's still one of the very, very early things. And we're going to eventually see them everywhere kind of take a whole other dimension. And it's not just about the art. It is not just about speculation, like purchasing something cheap and selling at a higher price. It is in the end about kind of reinventing or inventing a new kind of um, computing mechanism or um if you think about like the um, when when the when the, the the internet was appeared, the new thing was like websites. Everybody wanted to have a website, and they became kind of this new computing paradigm that people are like, oh, I can have a website just for me. A brand can have a website. What is a website? It's many things. Like at first it was just a landing page, but now it's everything, right? Um, similarly, when the app uh, iOS first appeared, everybody wanted to be an app or have an app, right? And there's actually people that created apps for themselves. Obviously, that has moved on and there's obviously a ton of apps these days, but it's kind of, again, the idea of a new computing paradigm. And I think NFTs are pretty much like that. We're going to see a lot of different types of NFTs uh, and it's an NFT itself is more than just one single use case, which would be art or gaming. It's in the end going to be same as websites. There's 
yeah, there's no doubt in my mind that we're going to see that. Amazing. Okay, so if you could snap your fingers and instantly change or improve one thing in the NFT space, what would it be? Uh, onboarding. I mean, clearly it's still way too hard for users who don't have wallets, who don't understand how things work. So that would be the biggest thing to change. Um, but I think we're getting there, right? Like, I mean, um, so yeah, onboarding. Awesome. All right, last question. Where do you see the world of NFTs in three years? Uh, on the way to become the thing that I described earlier, right? Like uh, a lot of NFTs used everywhere. You're purchasing a subway ticket in New York. It's actually an NFT. It is, it's something that is in your wallet that allows you to show that you have access to the subway. It's uh, something that becomes more and more ubiquitous uh, and that people are not thinking about too much. Like when you go to a website now, you don't think, oh, I'm going to go to a website, right? You're going straight to where you need to go. And I think it's going to be the same with NFTs. People are not going to think twice like, oh, am I, I'm purchasing an NFT or doing something like this. They'll just have NFTs in their wallet that they've purchased uh, previously and then just using them uh, the way they're intended to be used. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Julian, thank you so much for, for, for coming on. I, I really appreciate you, you taking the time. And also, I appreciate that you're, you dealt with my technical difficulties. And uh, yeah, I, I love learning all about your background, learning all about Unlock, and, and really your vision for the future is, is, is so exciting. So if people want to find out more about yourself, find out more about Unlock, where should they go? What should they do? Unlock-protocol.com, uh, big one. Uh, Julian51, pretty much everywhere online, uh, Twitter, GitHub, um, and then my, my blog I mentioned earlier, but you'll find it if you, if you find me uh, on Twitter or something else. Amazing. Awesome. Julian, thanks so much for coming on. No, of course. And thank you very much, Andrew. This is an amazing show. I'm, I'm actually very excited and very proud to be on it. Uh, so definitely uh, keep, keep, up the, keep up the good work. Thanks, man. Awesome. Hey, everyone. Stay tuned for more episodes of the Zima Red podcast and subscribe to the Zima Red newsletter for more info on all things NFTs. Thanks so much for listening.